Good morning, Grace Hill. How are you? Good to see you. Uh, I wasn't here last week, and so every time I miss a Sunday, I always feel like it's so long between seeing you guys. So just really good to be here with you uh, this morning. Um, so this morning is going to be a unique Sunday. Uh, we are celebrating, or we're, I think, more so recognizing is the right word, uh, to put their uh, Stand Sunday. And Stand Sundays, we're joining with thousands of other churches that are taking a stand for vulnerable children and families who've been touched by the foster care system. And if you know me and my family, you know that this is a, uh, a very close issue to our hearts, something that we um, think about a lot and that something that we as a family um, are committed to as well. And so we wanted to take a Sunday and we wanted to talk about God's heart for this particular issue, and we wanted to talk about the very specific ways that we as a church um, believe that God has called us to engage in this issue. And we've had the privilege of partnering with a number of organizations and even starting our own ministry um, that serves this particular issue. So let me, let me just say this before we jump in uh, and all of that, and, and, and that is... Um, I, I struggled this week to put together a sermon. And it's not because I don't have anything to say about it. I have too much to say about it. Um, and this is one of those sermons, at least for me, that is just so close to my heart. There's, I have so much that I just long for us as a church when it comes to this issue. And there's so many stories that I want to tell. And there's so many scriptures that I want to open up and explore with you to see God's heart. I just... I struggled on how to, how to compile this together. And so I, I'm just going to share my heart with you this morning. And we're just going to open up the Bible together. And I want you to see God's heart for this this morning. And I'm going to do my best to not go super long. And I'm going to do my best to hold it together uh, on stage here. But I just wanted you to know this is close to my heart. And as your pastor... I do want to say this. If I, if I had to choose one area that this church would be faithful in, all right, there's lots of areas we're going to be faithful in as a church, but if I had to choose one, mimicking and displaying and living out God's heart for the vulnerable and the marginalized is it. This is the very thing that I just long for as a church that we would be faithful in, in, in addition to lots of other things. So hang with me, get your Bible out, open it up to Jeremiah chapter 22, if you would. And I, I would, if you have a Bible or if you have a phone app, like, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to point us to a number of scriptures this morning, because I want you to see that what we're going to be talking about this morning, it's not just a portion of the Bible or a verse that we're going to go look at and, and, and build this whole theology out of. We're going to look at multiple places in Scripture. We're going to look at a theme that goes throughout all of Scripture when it comes to this particular topic. So if you want to be ready to go, have your finger in Jeremiah 22, have your finger in Isaiah chapter 1, and have your finger in Matthew chapter 25. All right? I told you it's going to be a lot of scripture we're going to hop around in this morning. Um, but let me start here. Um, every week at Grace Hill Church, we preach from this book because we believe in this book, the Bible. We believe this is God's inerrant word to us, that if we want to know who God is, 
who we are and how God calls us to live, it's found here. So we are committed to this and to everything that this book says, even the things that we have a hard time with, because those are in there, we're committed to them. And this book tells a story. And that story starts with God creating this world and creating mankind and declaring it good. It starts with God and mankind dwelling together in the same place. But very quickly as we read this story, we know it falls apart. That sin enters the world. And so we live in this fallen, broken world. And and all of our experience in this world is that we are both battered and complicit in the brokenness of this world. What I mean by battered is we live in a sinful world. So in our experience, right, people are going to sin against us. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience hard things. We're going to experience hurt and regret and anger. There's, there's lots of things that are going to happen to us that wound us, batter us, and we need healing from that but we're also complicit. The Bible says that we have a sin nature, that we contribute to the brokenness of this world through our own sin. And so therefore we need to be redeemed from that. And the story of the Bible is that God himself sees us in our fallen, broken state and he draws near to us in and through Jesus. And he begins that process for those who believe in Christ and what he did on the cross. He begins that process of healing and redeeming us. And then he promises us this, that one day he's going to return. And when he does, he's going to bring his kingdom in its fullness. And it says in the very uh, second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, it, it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He'll heal us from our time here. And it also says that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will redeem us fully from our sin. And this is what the Bible calls the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And so as we go throughout this story, one of the things that we see in it, and we talk about this all the time. I hope you're like, yeah, he's saying it again. All right, one of the things that we see is that God calls his people citizens of his kingdom. God calls his people citizens of his kingdom. If if God has redeemed you, if he's brought you into his family, if you've placed your trust in Jesus, you are a citizen of his kingdom. And therefore he calls you to interact with people in the world in such a way where they would get an experience of the kingdom. That when they interact with you and when they see your life and the way they, they see the way you treat people and care for people and all that, that, that they would taste the kingdom. Like this is exactly what Jesus did when he came, right? Jesus arrived on the scene. He's the king. And what happened? When people interacted with Jesus, they got a taste of the kingdom. Some didn't like it. 
right? I, I, I think of the woman who had the bleeding disorder and she comes up behind Jesus in a crowd. He does, she doesn't want Jesus to see her because she's used to being ostracized and criticized and pushed to the margins. And so she just reaches out to touch his garment because she believed that he could heal her and even that little act would heal her. And that's what happened. She was healed and Jesus stops and turns around. And what happens? She expects to be criticized and Jesus draws in here. And gives her a taste of the kingdom. Not just the healing of her body, but the compassion, the relationship, the care of her father in heaven. Or I think of Zacchaeus, a tax collector, right? Who was just hated by his people. He was a Jew who was a traitor and he was working for the Romans and defrauding his own people. And he encounters Jesus. What does he expect? Jesus is a Jew. He expects to be criticized like everyone else did him. What did Jesus say? Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm having dinner at your place tonight. And gave him an experience of the kingdom. So we could just go on and on. This is what Jesus does. And this is what Jesus calls his people to do in this life as we wait his return is to live as if we are in the kingdom. To give people an experience of the kingdom throughout the entire scripture. And I'm going to show you this today. We see this call upon our lives. The Bible says that he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And as we await that day, he calls us to be people who wipe tears away from people's eyes in this life, in this world, in the name of Christ, as a part of our witness. And so as I said, this morning is Stand Sunday. And so we're joining with lots of other churches and taking a stand for vulnerable children and families who've been touched by the foster care system. And this is something that we care deeply about as a church. We have a privilege of partnering with a number of organizations, all of which I'm going to highlight for you this morning, that do work in this space. And I'm excited to help us all understand the role that we can play in this. But the first thing that I want to do is just want to teach you about God's heart on this issue from the scriptures. And so, like I said, let's jump into the Bible together. We're going to start in Jeremiah 22. So if you open your Bible to Jeremiah 22, we'll read a few verses out of it here in just a second. But let me give you, before we read it, let me give you a bit of the historical background of what we're about to read. Jeremiah, he's a prophet to God's people, specifically the people of Judah, all right, the southern kingdom. And so Jeremiah is on the scene, you know, 590s BC around then. When Jeremiah was prophesying, when he was being used by God to deliver God's word to God's people, it was not a good time for Judah. Uh, The Babylonians were on the doorstep of invading. Uh, The Babylonians did invade Jerusalem in 597 BC. So they go in under Nebuchadnezzar. And then what happens is the, when the Babylonians invade, they kind of set up this guy named Zedekiah to be a puppet king over Judah. So Judah was still its own kingdom, but it kind of been taken over by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians put this guy, Zedekiah, up to be the king of Judah. Now, Zedekiah was an evil king. He did not do the will of God, as the Bible would say. 
But the Babylonians didn't really like Zedekiah either. They were, he wasn't doing the things that they wanted him to do. So they decide about 10 years after their first invasion and after they put Zedekiah in, they decided about 10 years after, ah, we're going to go in and just take over it all. So the Babylonians are on the doorstep again, ready to invade. And so what Zedekiah does is he decides to inquire of the prophet Jeremiah and ask Jeremiah, hey, will you go plead to the Lord on our behalf? All right, that's the historical context. Let's read what Jeremiah says. So Jeremiah 22, I'm gonna read verses one to five. It says this, thus says the Lord, He's speaking to Jeremiah. Go down to the house of the king of Judah, that's Zedekiah, and speak there this word and say. So this is what Jeremiah is supposed to say to Zedekiah. Hear the word of the Lord, O king of Judah, who sits on the throne of David, you and your servants and your people who enter these gates. So this message is for all people in Judah. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed and do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. For if you will indeed obey this word, then there shall enter the gates of this house Kings who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. Let me just explain what we just read there. So God is saying through Jeremiah to Zedekiah, if you want my blessing, if you want me to prevent the Babylonians from invading, if you don't want a different king here from a different nation, but you want a king that's gonna sit on the throne of David, then you will care for the vulnerable. You will act justly. You will care for the fatherless. You will care for the widow. You'll care for the immigrant. You will do those things. That's what I'm requiring of you. Verse five, but if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself declares the Lord that this house shall become a desolation. You'll be invaded. So this is what God is saying in Jeremiah 22. He's saying, if you want me to prevent the punishment, the judgment that I have declared upon you, then you will be a people who act justly and care for the vulnerable. Now, this didn't come out of nowhere. It's not as if this was news to Zedekiah or news to God's people, that this is what God wanted from his people. Go in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 1. So we're going we're gonna to rewind the clock here about 150 years, okay? So go to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is another prophet to the uh, kingdom of Judah. Isaiah was prophesying about 150 years earlier during the, the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and I think Ahaz and, and Hezekiah, these kings over Judah. So Isaiah's doing the same thing. He's bringing the word of God. And what Isaiah was gonna start to do is start to warn God's people, hey, if you don't follow God's word, God is going to send an enemy nation in to invade you. All right, that prophecy would come true during Jeremiah's time prophesying. But look at what 
God says through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter one, we're gonna read verses 11 to 17 together. Look what it says. This is God speaking through Isaiah to the same kingdom. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Let me just stop for a second. We're going to read just a little bit more. But what is God saying here? God, I mean, these people have been following God's commands when it comes to the sacrificial system and following God's commands when it comes to worship and ordinances and feasts and Sabbath. I mean, they're doing all of the things that God prescribed them to do, and God's saying, I'm, I don't want it from you. Why? Verse 16. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Look at verse 17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. 150 years before this moment with King Zedekiah, God said to his people, I don't want your worship if you're gonna prioritize your comfort over the vulnerable. I don't want your singing. I don't want your gathering. I don't want your preaching. I don't want your feasts. I don't want your fellowship. I don't want your Bible reading. I don't want your quiet times. If you are not going to care for the vulnerable. Because when you care for the vulnerable, you display my very heart. If we go back over to Jeremiah chapter 22, we'll read just a little bit more of what God was saying to Zedekiah because what was happening 150 years later was the same thing. People were prioritizing their comfort over God's call on them. Look at Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 to 16 with me. It says, woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. Who says, I will build myself a great house with spacious upper rooms, who cuts out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Do you think you are a king because you compete in cedar? Did not your father eat and drink and do justice and righteousness. Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy. Then it was well. Is not this to know me, declares the Lord? God asked the question, 
isn't it what it means to know me actually means to care for the vulnerable and to serve the poor and to love the needy. That's what it means to know me. And yet, Judah, you have prioritized your comfort over this very thing. And so judgment is coming. Fast forward in your Bible all the way to Matthew chapter 25. I told you a lot of Bible this morning. All the way to Matthew chapter 25, the king himself is here. And the king himself is going to start to teach about the actual judgment that is coming. Not just one nation invading another, but the judgment at the end of the age. And look at the very thing that Jesus says. I'm going to read a good chunk of text, verses 31 to 46. This is Jesus. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What is he going to do? It's time for judgment. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or, or thirsty and, and give you drink? And, and when did we see you a stranger and, and welcome you or naked and, and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, as you did it for the vulnerable, you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least, as you did not do it for the vulnerable, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life what it means to know God means to have a heart for the vulnerable. If we go all the way back one more to Jeremiah chapter, go to 23, the next chapter over. Jeremiah is going to himself prophesy about that coming king. He himself is going to prophesy about that king who will lead us, lead God's people to be a people who have a heart for the vulnerable. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 simply says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Jeremiah prophesying about Christ himself, that Jesus himself will come, as we just read in Matthew 25, and he will lead us to be a people who care for the vulnerable. Why? Because that's exactly what Christ has done for us. Christ himself saw you in your vulnerable state, battered by the sin of this world, complicit in the sin of this world, and he acted. He stepped forward. He didn't just declare a message. He didn't just use words. No, Philippians 2 teaches he came and he became obedient to the point of even death, giving his life over for you so that you could be healed and redeemed from the sin of this world. And Jesus draws us in and he says, now I'm sending you out to go do the same thing for the vulnerable of this world, to care for the vulnerable, the marginalized, the oppressed, and the poor in my name. That's what it means to know Christ. So I have two observations from these texts that I just want to pull out so that we see them, and then we'll, we'll move on to some practical ways to live this out. But the two observations that just need us to see from here is, number one, God calls us as his people, as his church, to actively care for and serve the vulnerable. He calls us to do that. It's what it means to know him. I, I don't think we can find a version of Christianity in the Bible that allows for piety without caring for the vulnerable. I believe Isaiah 1 and Matthew 25, among other texts, make it clear God's not interested in any of it if we don't care for the vulnerable. He's not interested in it. He's not interested in this if we don't care for the vulnerable. And that's hard to hear. That's hard for me to even say. And that makes me tremble before God as a leader of a, of a church when I read God's word. And I say, okay, God, I think you're so clear on what you want us to do. Help us to be faithful to that. Because isn't that what it means to know him? And so God calls us to actively do that. And the second observation I have is you can't sit on the sidelines of this one and claim to follow Jesus. I don't know if I could have given a more airtight case on it. Like, you can't sit on the sidelines and not stand before Jesus in that final judgment and, and say, Jesus, I've, I've followed you my entire life. I, I went to church my entire life. I read my Bible. I, I know a lot of Bible knowledge. And yet, if there was no heart for caring for the vulnerable, we're at risk of him saying to us, I never knew you. Because isn't that what it means to know him? It's to see what he has done for us in our vulnerable state and then go and give people an experience of the kingdom. And so as a church, we want to lead you in caring for the vulnerable. We want to lead all of us. We want to do this band together and do this together. You're not called to do this alone. You're not called to figure this out alone. We are called to do this as a family. And so what I want to do this morning is 
I just want to highlight the ways in which we are doing this as a church, give you the information of how you can continue to engage in that and maybe start to engage if you haven't when it comes to caring for the vulnerable in our community. When we talk about caring for vulnerable children and families, I'll define that in just a second for you. But there's really three roles that we can fill, right? All of us have a a part in this. Like I said, I don't think we can sit on the sidelines, but there's three roles that I think we can each fill or each of us can fill one of these roles. Uh, The first role is the role of prevention, which I'll define for you. The second role is one of being on the front lines. And the third role is supplying or supporting the front lines, right? So if you think about like fighting a war, right? When you, when you fight a war, uh, one, you, you've got kind of this diplomatic side, right? And, and their whole aim is to try to prevent the war from even happening. Like, how do we make sure this doesn't even become a thing, right? That's prevention. But then if a war does happen, you've got people on the front lines engaged in it, but those people will only survive and have a shot if they've got people behind the scenes supporting and supplying. And so in this very thing, caring for vulnerable children and families, we have the same three roles, prevention, front lines, and supplying those front lines. Okay, and I want to walk through those because we have opportunities in each of those buckets. And so I want to start with prevention. Let's start with prevention. When we talk about children and families who are vulnerable, what I'm specifically referring to is children and families who are at risk of separation. Children and families who are at risk of a child being removed and put into the foster care system, or other things like that. And there are lots of reasons why this might happen, why a separation might occur. Uh, Those reasons could be everything from poverty is a reason why separation uh, might occur. Um, It might be immigration, uh, where, uh, you you know, deportation and immigration issues. For example, there was a family here at Hernan Middle School a couple of years ago that we were uh, privileged to be able to serve. It was a a family, a mom, a dad, and their daughter. Daughter went to this school and dad got deported. So now you have mom and daughter, no job, no money, nowhere to go. And so now all of a sudden we have one separation, dad's deported, and then the second separation is imminent because if there's poverty or if mom can't take care of daughter, then the system will step in and separate. And so we were privileged to be able to serve this family in a couple of ways in that particular area. So that could be a reason for separation. Um, Other reasons could be addiction or neglect or abuse, right? Sometimes separation is necessary because of things going on inside of that family. Um, Other reasons could be lack of support Uh, and training. You've got people who become parents, and they've never been taught how to be a parent before. And if you look at their legacy, or if you look at what has come behind them, their story, you realize they never had a shot of being a good parent, or one that could hold their child. And so separation might occur. There's lots of reasons why separation might occur. So the work of prevention is building relationship with people, so that you know where you could step in in appropriate areas, fill gaps, serve people, meet needs, and maybe that means that we could prevent separation from occurring altogether. 
The work of prevention is so important because what it does is it stops cycles. See, when a separation occurs between a child and parents, a deep trauma has happened. It doesn't matter what age they are. If they're separated at birth, a deep trauma has happened that that child will carry with them. If they're separated when they're older, that has happened. And what, happened is, what happens is that trauma stays with this child, and we begin to see a cycle. I've been a foster care parent with my wife for seven years. I think in that time, we've fostered five children. Um, all five, all five, five for five had parents who grew up in foster care. So you have a cycle that's happening, right, in their lives. And so the work of prevention is that work of trying to step in where appropriate. If we can prevent separation from occurring, if we can give parents and families the tools and support they need to be able to stay together, then we stop the cycle. And we avoid trauma that doesn't need to occur. And so we have two ministries Um, in regards to prevention that I want to talk about. Uh, The first one is a ministry that we started here uh, at Grace Hill Church. It's called The Gap. So you've heard me talk about this all the time. Uh, The Gap ministry is a ministry where we have families assigned to us by Fairfax County, and we get the privilege of serving them and meeting their needs in various ways and building relationships with them. We do that through our community groups. We assign one of these families to our community groups, and we deliver groceries, and we seek to build a relationship with them. And the hope here, the role that we're trying to play here is prevention. It's not just giving them food to eat. We are so blessed to help them have food on the table. But the goal is, if, can, we, can we step in where appropriate and provide whatever support necessary to give them the tools they need to stay together. So let me give you an example. Last year, last spring, we were contacted about a mom who, a teen mom who had just had a child, um, child, just newborn, but this teen mom was here on an asylum visa, and so she had fled legitimate violence from overseas. She was here. She had nothing. Nothing, no, nowhere to go, no, no place to stay. Now she has a child, she's still in high school. What is she gonna do? And so we knew, we found out that separation was imminent. That was about to happen. She was on CPS's radar. No child should be separated because of poverty. And through the ministry here at Grace Hill and a few other partners, a bunch of things started to come together. Man, people in this church stepped up, began to build a relationship with her, began to try to find her a place to live. We had people offer their own homes to this girl. Then through a few other partners, able to find her a place that she could live, a program that would help her in Fairfax City, but she still had a lot of needs, had to get to school, needed someone to watch the baby. So people in this church stepped up, driving to Fairfax City every morning to take her to school, Eventually, we got her transportation, and so the, the transport would bring a baby over. It came to my house a few mornings. It came, I know some of you, I know the Huppies, the stack houses. I'm sure there's others not even thinking of. Like, that baby came to your house several times. Many of you held that baby. 
That baby was here at church. I remember that mom coming to our Easter service and she slept through the whole thing. And I loved it because she was getting the rest that she needed while her baby was being held by people who loved her and cared for her. She went to a family's house for Easter dinner. So supporting her as she was in school, then eventually the summer came. She didn't need to go to school for the summer and she was working and our contact with her became less and less and less and less until one day, we found out that she had left the program she was in, the housing program she was in in Fairfax City, and so we inquired, hey, what happened? You know what they said? She made it. She's on her own. She's caring for that child. She's working. She's a good mom. And so that's an example of how us with other partners, which isn't all just us, but us with other partners are able to step in in appropriate places and able to fill some gaps so that her child wasn't taken from her. It was all done in the name of Christ. And so we pray for her. We pray that she would know that, that it wasn't just a bunch of good people from Herndon who did that, but it was, she was experiencing the kingdom is what we pray. And so that's an example of what we're aiming at with GAP. And so if you're interested in leaning in more in GAP, here's all I would say to you is, is lean into your community group's family. If your group has a family, um, do the grocery runs. Do your best to build a relationship if they want that. All right? Some of them don't want to build a relationship. We respect that. Try to figure out what other ways we can meet needs in appropriate areas. Sometimes it's messy. We've had some messy families It hasn't always been perfect. That's not the point. The point is we have opportunities with vulnerable families to step in, build relational credibility, and serve them where they need it. And that's what GAP's all about. And so I encourage you to lean more into GAP. If you have a community group that doesn't have a family right now, be talking as a community group. What does it look like for us to take on a family? Because the county is always sending us families. Second ministry in the area of prevention is Young Lives. Young Lives is a ministry of young life to teen moms and dads. And we have the privilege of supporting them financially and serving them in various ways. Um, They're a great ministry here uh, in Herndon in Northern Virginia. Wendy Crawford, the leader of that ministry, is fantastic. She's amazing. Um, And they're doing such great work. And so we support them financially um, but they're in this work of prevention. Let me tell you one more story. I'm going to do my best. Tell you one more story. So I was meeting with Wendy a couple weeks ago. And she was telling me about how they're now starting to serve teen dads. Because historically they've always served teen's mom. But now they're starting to serve teen dads. And they have, they have this one teen mom and teen dad who have a child together. And they're coming to their ministry. And they're mentoring them. And they're sharing the gospel with them. And they're meeting needs and they're stepping in because for the population in this area, a lot of teen moms are vulnerable at risk of separation. And they're standing in there and they're meeting needs. And I just remember I looked at Wendy in the eyes and I just said, Wendy, I just need you to know, like right now, it seems small. It's, it's three people, a mom, a dad, and this baby. But you have no idea the generational impact that will occur if this baby grows up with a mom and a dad, you have no idea. Like, like 100 years down the road, 
what this is going to mean. And it's all being done in the name of Christ. And that mom and dad is experiencing the kingdom. And so I want us as a church to throw gas on the fire that is young lives. All right, we support them financially as a church. They need more support. Uh, Wendy herself needs more support. So one of my encouragements to you is if you go into your bulletin and you scan that QR code right here, um, there's going to be a link there uh, on that page. You'll see a link where you can donate to Young Lives. Um, And uh, I put in there uh, how you designate the gift so that Wendy gets it so that she can continue her ministry here uh, in Northern Virginia. I want to make sure that they are fully funded, um, and we will continue to serve them. I know in the spring we're going to be doing a dinner for them in different ways. You can also volunteer through them. But Young Lives is another area you can get into prevention. All right, I got to speed this up. Okay, uh, number two, the second uh, uh, area, role that we can play is being on the front lines. And the main way that we're on the front lines is through considering and praying through becoming a foster care parent. We have a number of those families in our church. And I'm not going to lie to you, it's hard work. But it's not crazy. It's not crazy because you have a community here who wants to support you. If you have an open bed, an open room, and an open heart to allow a child to come into your home, I can't think of a more robust way to display God's kingdom but by opening your home to someone who doesn't have one and saying, despite the mess, despite the inconvenience, despite the many ways I'm going to have to die to myself for this, you're welcome here. This stat blew my mind. If one family out of every seven churches in America, one family out of every seven churches in America fostered a child, there would be no more children waiting for a foster home. Like the church can solve this, can step into this. The church could be people who say, what it means to know God is to care for the vulnerable. And so we're going to show our country and our nation what we're about. There's lots of ways the church is trying to show the country and nation what we're about. I'm pretty sure God says, do it this way. Care for the vulnerable of this nation. And so foster care, I, I, I encourage you to pray through that. If you're interested, if you're interested, my wife and I, along with some of the other families here who do foster care, would love to do an interest meeting. We don't have one scheduled. We want to figure out who's interested in that. So if you scan that QR code in your bulletin, there's a form there that you could say, hey, yeah, I'd be interested in going to an interest meeting where some of the families of our church will talk through what foster care is, uh, talk about the process to become a foster care parent, answer any question that you want, All right, we'll share all the stories or whatever it is, but we'd love to encourage more families in our church to jump on the front lines. Last role that I gotta talk about here, and that's this, is supplying the front lines. Foster care can't occur in a healthy way unless there's a village behind them supporting and supplying them. 50% of foster care parents quit after the first year because they don't have the support that they need to keep going. And so people need support behind them so that they can be on the front lines, so that they can stay in the fight. And so uh, I'm especially biased for this one because 
my wife started a nonprofit that does this very thing. It's called Foster the Family here in D.C. We as a church support them. I would like for her to tell you about it via video behind me real quick. There are an estimated 450,000 children in foster care in the U.S. 2,000 of those children are right here in the DMV. The need for foster families is huge. However, we know that 50% of foster parents will quit after their first year, mainly due to lack of support. My name is Kim McCullough, and I'm the director of Foster the Family DC. And this Stand Sunday, I want to invite you to take a stand for the children and families that are affected by the child welfare system in our community. Foster the Family is a nonprofit that supports and encourages foster, adoptive, kinship, and vulnerable families right here in the DMV area. We seek to provide that missing support so that families can continue this important work. We show up right at the beginning of their foster care journey with brand new emergency supplies for the child and a meal and resources for the foster family. And we commit to walk with them through the entirety of each case by providing ongoing holistic support and connecting parents with one another so they feel less alone. You can support the work of Foster the Family by volunteering to pack one of our foster care packages and deliver it straight to the home of a family that has just welcomed home a child. Volunteering on one of our child care teams to give parents a much needed break at one of our respite nights or support groups. You can also coordinate a meal drive or a donation drive, or simply purchase items off of our Amazon wish list that's constantly updated according to our greatest needs. Or you can write an encouraging note to a foster family that will be delivered along with their foster care package and a gift straight to the parents. Or you can volunteer at one of our events. We have a holiday party coming up on December 3rd with many opportunities for your church to help out or sponsor that event. Or you can become a monthly foster care package partner donating the much needed funds to supply foster care packages to children entering foster care. Whatever you decide, we are so excited to partner with you in taking a stand for vulnerable children and foster adoptive and kinship families in the DMV area. Thank you for taking a stand with us. My wife and a group of other people started this ministry about a year ago. They serve dozens of foster care families in our area. One more quick story. One of the things that they do is they deliver these awesome care packages uh, to uh, foster families within 24 hours of a placement arriving at their doorstep. Um, and they have volunteers on call at all times so that when the, when the request comes in, they get it over there. So I was on call one day, and um, the request came in. So I threw my kids in the car. Kim was out somewhere, and we went into our stock room. They have a stock room full. We packed up the bags. There's three siblings that went into foster care. And on the way, I got an alert. I think it was from Kim or somebody else that actually it was one of those kids' birthday. The day they got taken out of their parents' home. And... Um, so we like diverted to Target and I found out that, you know, he loved basketball. So we bought him a basketball and his favorite dessert was apple pie. So we bought him an apple pie and we went and delivered and uh, the kids didn't come to the door. Um, I just talked to the foster mom and we handed them for stuff and 
just told her we were there for her, let us know if she needed anything, that she has a village behind her to support her in this work and to, to don't be a stranger. She said, thank you, and closed the door, we, we left. It was quick, and then I got a text message like an hour later, and it said, thank you so much because I, these kids didn't say a word until they got all this, and then all of a sudden they opened up, and, and now I can just tell that they're like smiling and they feel welcome in my home, and that she said, the foster mom said, it was everything. It was everything to have that kind of support. So this is the kind of support system that we're privileged to partner with Foster the Family in providing. And so a um, couple of ways that, that you can support Foster the Family. Number one, uh, scan that QR code. Um, and there are ways that you can donate to Foster the Family. There's also, you can become a volunteer if you want to help deliver foster care packages and a number of other things that they do. They're having a huge Christmas party on December 3rd um, here in Herndon with like 400 kids coming to that thing. So they need tons of volunteers to help put that on. Um, this is all serving, like all of those are foster families coming in. Um, so just put a great party on. So if you want to volunteer, that's a huge need as well. Kim has set up a table in the uh, lobby as well. If you'd like to get more information, please go talk to her about it. Um, she's been working hard uh, for a year on this. Many of you are involved with it uh, with her, um, but one of the ways that you can encourage one of your sisters, one of your fellow church members here at Grace Hill, is to go hear about the ministry that she's put together and figure out how that you can help serve them. Another cool thing I just want to bring to your attention is uh, Foster the Family put together this great card that helps you talk through what foster care is with your kids. And so we are a church that has foster families here. So we're going to have kids here who are foster care kids. And so sometimes our kids are confused by what that is and what that means. And so this card is one way that you can support foster families by talking to your kids about what foster care is. And this is going to help you in that. I know for us, when we've had foster care kids come in and out of our family, um, this church has just wrapped themselves around us, loved those kids. I mean, when those kids leave our home, we are crying, and then it's one other thing to see that our church family's crying with us um, in that as well. So go and engage with Foster the Family. I've got to get off this stage. Um, here's what I wanna do. I just wanna, I wanna end this way with that last observation that I had with the text, and that's this. When it comes to caring for the vulnerable, you can't sit on the sidelines. Now, we all have different roles to play. So not everyone is, it's right for them to be a foster care parent, right? Not everyone, there's all kinds of different roles that all of us can fill so that we as a church family and a body can care for the vulnerable. And so here's all I wanna do. I just wanna give you time. I know we're out of time, but we're gonna just go a few minutes late. So forgive me for that, it's my fault. But I just wanna give you a few minutes right now before we get out and go to lunch and grab our kids and kind of have a busy rest of the day, I just want us to have a few moments to just pray and ask the Lord, like, Lord, where are you calling me to care for the vulnerable? Because you don't have to figure this out alone. You don't have to do this alone. But there are specific ways that you can do it. And I just want all of us to spend some time right now reflecting on that. So let's do that. And then we're gonna close.